If you've been coming here, you're aware that we are working through the book of John. If you're new, uh, we're working through the book of John. Uh, we're fairly far in, though, so you missed a lot. But uh, we, are, we are finishing up today John 19, uh, the second half of the chapter. And what we've done, uh, we've been kind of been going verse by verse, but as we got into the very familiar uh, the trial and the crucifixion and the resurrection, all that. I'm, I'm not going to go verse by verse through John. I'm just going to pull from all four Gospels and put the story together. Um, and so what we're going to do this morning is we're going to gaze a little bit about Jesus' crucifixion. Uh, it's important that we do that, and, and I'll tell you why in a minute. Um, but I was thinking this morning, this is free. This isn't in your notes. There are notes if you want to follow along. Um, uh, the, in Psalm 118, how many of you like that passage? It says, this is the day that the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. All right? That's in Psalm 118. And now, most people, when they say that, they mean today. I'm going to rejoice in today because God made it. And that's okay. He made today too, and tomorrow, and yesterday, and all the days. And you can rejoice in any of them you want. But it's not what that verse is saying. If you go just before that verse... Uh, a verse or two before it, it says the stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made, and we will rejoice and be glad in it. So what he's saying is not, and it's okay, you can rejoice in all the days, even the bad ones, uh, but what he's saying is not every day is a day to rejoice because Jesus made that day. He's saying every day is a good day to remember the day that he made Jesus the chief cornerstone and rejoice in that. So it is always, every day, according to Psalm 118, appropriate to gaze on the cross and to rejoice in that reality. So we're going to do that today. Amen? So uh, and I say gaze on the cross because that's, uh, uh, I did this once, um, a couple of you in the room or maybe listening online were there, maybe. Uh, it was a long time ago. It was a youth retreat, and I was going to teach on the cross, and I thought this would be a good idea. It was not, by the way. Um, I thought it would be a good idea. I didn't want to just read about it, so I thought, I'm just going to, I'm going to get the story so in me that I can just tell it and not use, not have to read it from Scripture, just tell it. So what I did is I, I pulled out of the, the four passages we have listed here in the four Gospels where Jesus is crucified, and I just read them and thought about them and visualized it and, and meditated on it for like two weeks, right? And I can feel something building in me, didn't know what it was, thought, thought this is a good thing, this is, this is you know, God, this is going to be good, the anointing and all that. So two weeks later, I get up, to teach at this youth retreat, and, and now all this has been building up me, I'm ready to let it out, right? So I'm going to just tell them the story of the cross. And the moment I try and speak, I start crying. Now, and for those of you who don't know me, this is unusual. <laughs> and uh, this goes on for, I don't know, 10 or 15 minutes. I cannot talk. Every time I try and talk, I start crying. Because whatever had been building up in me was, 
a revelation of the cross. And now this is the worst teaching ever because they're not experiencing what I'm experiencing. They haven't spent two weeks meditating on the cross. I'm just by myself uh, wrecked by two weeks of meditating on the cross, and they're just watching me cry. So uh, I say that to say uh, this is a little dangerous when you decide to gaze on the cross. It will mess with you, but it's supposed to mess with you. Here's why. Romans 5.8 says that God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That verse is saying that the cross is a demonstration of his love, right? And so it makes sense that when we meditate on the visual demonstration of his love for us, that it might wreck us, that it might give us a greater revelation of his love for us. So if you want a greater revelation of the love of Jesus, then yeah, uh, go take these passages and spend a couple of weeks meditating on them and see what happens. Uh, just, you know, be careful. <laughs> uh, but I'll tell you, where it flips, where it becomes real, is when you begin to realize this is for me. This isn't for the earth. This is for me. He did this for me. And you begin to see that and meditate on that and go, this is for me. This is how much he loves me. This is how much he loves you. And so, uh, just in a small way, we're going to do that this morning. I'm pretty sure I'm not going to cry for 10 minutes. Uh, I think, yeah. You never know. You know, God, I don't think it'll be funny, God. I'm just saying. All right. All right. Anyway, let's get into this. So, uh, I just listed these by points. All the things that happen sort of in order, believe it or not, the Gospels don't have them all in exactly the same order because they all sort of happen, some of them together. Uh, but here's what goes on. First, uh, we have a guy named Simon, which was a pretty common name that day. Everybody's named Simon or Mary. There's like a dozen Marys at the cross. Uh, anyway, Simon of Cyrene uh, is tasked with carrying the cross. Jesus has just been beaten and, and scourged with a whip, very painful. He's weak, he's bleeding, and at some point, we, don't, we, we can hypothesize, we don't know for sure why, um, whether he was too weak to carry the cross, whether they want to just make sure he made it to uh, the hill in good shape so they could crucify him. Uh, for whatever reason, they grab a guy out of the crowd named Simon of Cyrene. That's, a, that's basically Libya, North Africa. Uh, and uh, he carries the cross. Now, the question, of course, is, because everything in Scripture means something, why, do we, why is this guy listed by name? And uh, the, the answer is no one really knows. But we do know this. Uh, it seems like he was known um, because in, in Mark, it lists his two sons, Alexander and Rufus. So it's kind of like they were all in on this. Uh, the readers of the Gospels would have known who this was. So you know Simon of Cyrene. You know uh, Alexander and Rufus' dad. He carried the cross. And so uh, apparently this was a known guy, which means he was a guy that was in the church. And tradition tells us that uh, this guy, Simon, went back to Egypt, which is also North Africa, and preached the gospel and was martyred. Traditionally, he was sawn in half, which sounds unpleasant. But uh, my point here is uh, he followed Jesus and carried his cross and watched him being crucified. And he spent the rest of his life giving testimony that this is the Son of God to the point where he was martyred. So uh, I'll just say this. 
you start gazing at the cross and following Jesus and taking up his cross and carrying it, it might make you kind of radical to the point where, you know, you might get so preachy that people want to saw you in half. Again, just a warning. All right. The next thing that happens, so they've got him up to the hill where they're going to crucify him, and they offer him wine mixed with gall or myrrh, depending on which, maybe both, uh, depending on uh, which gospel we're reading. And he refuses this. Now, here's why. Um, What is kind of, again, common knowledge, when you were going to be crucified, it was not uncommon for them, uh, mercifully, to offer you a drink beforehand. The, the, The gall and myrrh, uh, were to dull the pain, and even if enough of it's in there, it's kind of a mild poison, so it's, it's to kind of move things along. You know, here you go. It's kind of like the part in Braveheart where she gave him the thing to drink that would make the suffering better. Um, it was the same sort of thing. Jesus, of course, goes, no, uh, I'm not going to have it dulled. Uh, I'm going to go through it fully. Uh, no thank you on the uh, painkiller. Got it? So this is also, and you're going to see a lot, uh, I want you to see how documented this is in Scripture beforehand. It's as if God wanted to say, uh, look, this is really me, so I'm just going to fulfill about a dozen prophecies as I do this, so you'll know it's really me. And so this one is in Psalm 69, verse 21, where it says they offered him gall. It uh, also in that psalm says they offered him vinegar, which we'll get to later. So the next thing that happens is, again, he's crucified. They lay him down. They nail his hands and his feet to a cross. Very painful. Uh, they prop the cross up. Very painful. And uh, he is crucified about 9 in the morning. So he's, been, he's gone all night, as we learned last week. He's gone all night on two trials. He's... Uh, pulled in that morning for the second trial. He's beaten that morning. He's still bleeding from his beating. And now he's been crucified. It's about 9 a.m. It's already been a really long night. And uh, the thing about, well, I'll get to that later. Anyway, so he's on the cross, and there's people around. And there's a lot of his followers, a lot of the women that have come around, and they're lamenting him. And so uh, I want to show you his focus uh, before that, I'm sorry, I forgot, I want to show you, uh, I want you to pay attention to how many times we quote Psalm 22, I'll get to that in a minute, but in, uh, again, prophetic, Psalm 22, verse 16, for dogs have surrounded me, the congregation of the wicked has enclosed me, they pierced my hands and my feet, obviously, prophetic scripture about the crucifixion, right? Now, Listen to what he says to the people, to the women who are mourning. Because I want you to see his focus from the cross. And again, uh, this is amazing. If you just think about this as a human, um, my focus would, you know, be pretty much entirely on me at this point and the pain I'm experiencing. His focus is still on the sheep that he's dying to save. And uh, he speaks to them. And what I also want you to see is his focus... I believe, even is encompassing the next couple thousand years, even into his second coming, because of what he references. And I'll show you this. In Luke 23, uh, he says, uh, And a great multitude of the people followed him, and women who also mourned and lamented him. So there's 
lots of crying and lamenting going on. And Jesus turns to them and says, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and your children. And that's kind of heavy in a couple ways. One, I'm impressed that you're even thinking about me. Two, whoa, uh, you're saying there's something worse for us than this? And sadly, that's what he's saying. He says, for indeed, the days are coming in which they will say, blessed are the barren, uh, wombs that never bore, and breasts that never nurse. Or in other words, it would have been better if some people had never been born than to go through what we're going through. That's what he's prophesying. He says, uh, then they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. This is a direct quote from Hosea 10.8. It's a little bit challenging uh, there you can be some argument on where you place Hosea 10.8 in history, um, but I am pretty confident that it's talking about the day of the Lord, uh, the, the, the negative day of the Lord in, uh, at the end times when, when, uh, when the nations are gathering against Jerusalem and Jerusalem's being taken captive and being put in prison camps and a uh, third going to captivity and a third killed and bad things are happening. And he's saying it's, it's so bad He's speaking here of Israel, that they will say to the mountains fallen us, to the hills cover us. It would be better if we hadn't been born. So he's saying there's a, there's a persecution coming that's worse than what he's going through right now. He says, for if they do these things in the greenwood, what will be done in the dry? In other words, if they start out crucifying the Son of God, what are they going to do at the end of this whole thing? And so it's an interesting perspective for us. That God's saying, you think this is bad, wait till you see how evil the earth will get, how bad it will get for Israel in uh, what is called in the Old Testament the day of Jacob's trouble, right? Now, there's two places uh, he, he uh, the writer here uh, tells us that he's quoting Hosea 10.8, uh, but there's another place where this phrase is used, and it's not used for Israel, it's, it's in Revelation 6, it's at uh, it's when Jesus has opened the sixth seal. So six seals have happened, and multiple bad things have happened on the earth, and the rulers of the earth are starting to think that they may have made a mistake. And uh, so I want to read this to you, because this is directed towards unbelievers, and it's the same concept. And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, this is Revelation 6, by the way, Every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, fall on us, hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath is come and who is able to stand? So it's going to start with Israel going, oh, mountains fall on us, hide us from this. And then Jesus is going to show up and rescue Israel. And uh, somewhere in that process, the nations are going to go, oh dear, uh, mountains fall on us, hide us from the wrath of the Lamb. Uh, so just for fun, I put that reference in because uh, that's the other one where this phrase is used, in case you confuse those two. Uh, one is Israel, Jesus telling Israel, you're going to go through really bad times. The other is God, through the book of Revelation, telling the earth, uh, at the end of the day, it's going to be worse for those who try to destroy Israel than Israel. I'll rescue Israel, but you're going to want the mountains to fall on you. So anyway, uh, the bottom line is I recommend, you know, you be on the right side. Uh, 
Probably not even wait till then. Just be on the right side now. Yeah. Amen? All right, good. So we keep going. Uh, at this point, uh, they've got him on the cross, and they are going to divide his garments and cast lots for them, which, of course, we know is prophetic. Again, guess what psalm? Psalm 22. Uh, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing, they cast lots. Now, the fact that they're dividing up his clothing means he is unclothed. So not only was the cross meant to be a cruel, torturous form of death, it was meant to be extremely humiliating. They hung him up there naked. And so Jesus is not just being killed, he's being uh, intentionally humiliated before everyone, right? And this is prophetic. And then they put a sign up, King of the Jews. Pilate puts up the sign, King of the Jews. Now this torques off the, the Pharisees and the religious leaders because they said, no, 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 you need to change the sign to say he said he was the king of the Jews. That's why we're killing him, because he blasphemed. He claimed to be the king of the Jews, and we're saying, no, 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 he needs to die for that. And Pilate, of course, says, what I've written, I've written, king of the Jews. So Jesus gets the correct title over his head uh, on the sign, king of the Jews which is who he is. He's king of the earth. He's king of the universe. He's king of kings. Amen? Now, it's at this point, he's hanging on the cross, and now uh, uh, we've had the people lamenting. Now we have the people mocking. And there's lots of people, and they're mocking, and they're mocking in lots of ways. But what I want you to see is they mock him specifically. And I don't even know if they're aware of it, but... Uh, let me read to you Psalm 22, verse 6 through 8, and see if this sounds familiar. But I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men, and despised by the people. All those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head, saying, He trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. It's the very phrase that they used before the cross to mock him, right? I don't even know if they're aware they're quoting Psalm 22 while they're doing this. But they're quoting Psalm 22 while they're doing this. They're mocking Jesus and fulfilling prophecy, probably ignorantly. And so, uh, again, I just want you to see how much that uh, this, is perfect, this, uh, this whole thing is documented to be prophetic. Amen? So, next thing, uh, you're aware there are two criminals that are hung on either side of him, two thieves, right? And uh, this is prophetic in Isaiah 53, verse 12. It says, he was numbered with transgressors. So they had to, to fulfill prophecy, again, not knowing what they were doing, hang a couple thieves on either side of him. And you know what happened with these guys? Um, that, and it's interesting, so we want to talk about the implications of this. So, uh, one thief goes, hey, he's kind of joining in. If you're the son of God, why don't you get us out of here? And the other thief goes, dude, what are you doing, man? Uh, we, we deserve to be up here. This is the modern translation. We deserve to be up here. Uh, he doesn't deserve this. And then he ends with this. He, he, he looks over to Jesus, and he says, this is all he says. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. That's all he says. And Jesus says what? Today you'll be with me in paradise. Now, I don't know exactly what paradise means there. 
I don't know if it means heaven or Abraham's bosom, which remember that's where the dead, who the righteous dead were before Jesus made a way for them to go to heaven, uh, or both. Uh, but it sounds good. It sounds like salvation, doesn't it? So I want you to think about this. Think of the implications of this. What does it take to get saved? It looks to me like Jesus has done all the really hard work. All this guy said was, remember me when you come to your kingdom. Essentially, he acknowledged vocally, you're king and you have a kingdom. And Jesus said, good enough. Come on in. Isn't that wild? Guys, that's all it takes to be saved. It's just to believe who he is and, uh, and come under that. Just come under that truth, that reality. That's it. Jesus did all the hard work. He died on the cross for our sins. Amen? All right, that's good stuff. So, it is at this point that in Luke, Jesus says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. So, he's just told the thief, today you'll be with me in paradise. And he looks around and he goes, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. Now, we need to let this impact us because, again, he's up there. This is the gospel. He's up there to, be, to bear our sins be a sacrifice to save the earth. So he's looking at the guy, can't point, because, you know, but he's looking at the guy who's uh, just nailed his hands to a cross and going, Father, forgive that guy. I still want that guy with me in heaven. That Pharisee that is mocking me and quoting Psalm 22, forgive that guy, God. I still want that guy with me in heaven. I want him to see my glory. And that guy over there and that girl over there, and that, and you, and you, and you, and me, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Isn't that wild? I don't know what to say about that other than Selah. We need to ponder that, that he's hanging on the cross asking God to forgive the people who put him there and who are mocking him for being there. He says, they don't know what they're doing, God. Forgive them. His grace is truly amazing. So the next thing that happens is he takes care of his mom. He looks down. There's his mom. There's the apostle John. He says, Mom, there's your son. John, there's your mom. And he, in the midst of being crucified, provides for his mom's future. Uh, it is commonly known that John took uh, Mary with him to Ephesus when he went there. And uh, when he was a pastor there, and she spent the rest of her life, as far as we know, uh, doing fine in Ephesus. So, again, just see the Lord's heart. That in all of this, it's never about him. It's always about those around him. And this time, it's about mom. Now, here's where it gets interesting. They crucified him about 9 in the morning, right? About noon, it gets real dark. And it stays dark for three hours, from noon till 3 you know, you got to think about how committed do you have to be to evil or to your task if you're crucifying Jesus to not begin to go, you know what, we should rethink this. Something's wrong. Can you ever remember it being dark for three hours in the middle of the day? No, me neither. You think maybe something's going on? Yeah, maybe. I don't know if they get it. But maybe they just think it's a bad storm coming or something. I don't know. But it's like dark for three hours from noon 
to about three. Now, as we get close to three, and these are all estimates because, you know, they didn't have watches, they like in sundials, I don't know. <clears throat> so, I think they were pretty good at this, but they may have been off 10 or 15 minutes. So, as we get close to three, Jesus cries out. This is the first time he cries out. Here's what's interesting. Uh, they were required to do a daily sacrifice every day, twice a day actually, once in the morning, once in the late afternoon. Guess what time the daily sacrifice was? It's about this time. It's usually about 3.30. Is that right, Jerry? You know, I don't know. Uh, that's what I read. It's usually about that time. So Jesus is coming up on the time when the daily sacrifice, we're in the temple, someone's sacrificing a lamb because they had to do that every day, right? So it's almost like God really wants us to get this. So it's about the time of the daily sacrifice, and Jesus cries out. You remember what he cried? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is Psalm 22, again, verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me and from the words of my groaning? Now, this has implications, and I honestly don't know what they are. Uh, if you go and research this, you'll find lots of really lengthy articles quoting all kinds of scripture that all basically end with, but we don't know. Um, because there's no way to know exactly what happened here. Something happened. God, Jesus, who is God, who has been one with the Father for eternity in the Godhead, says, God, why have you forsaken me? Now, I don't think he quit being God. We do know this. We do know that he took our sins on him and bore them, and that the punishment for our sins was placed on him I don't, I, I, I'm not even going to try and parse exactly what he was experiencing when he said, Guy, why have you forsaken me? But something changed in that moment. Something was happening there where uh, whatever he enjoyed with God, if it, even if it was just a withdrawal of God's immediate felt presence, I don't know. I don't know what it was, but something happened. So he goes, God, why have you forsaken me? Sounds traumatic. Sounds like something he'd never experienced before in his eons of being God, right? So it says, God, why have you forsaken me? Now, I'm going to pause here and do another rabbit trail because this is just fun. How many of you in here are like evangelists and love to uh, one, two, three, four? Okay, well, that explains a lot. We need some more. Get some evangelists saved for us. We need some more evangelists. Okay, anyway, uh, this is an evangelistic trick I'm going to give you, and you guys who aren't evangelists, you can use this too. It's okay. All right. Uh, so it's Psalm 22. You ever been talking to somebody and they go, well, the Bible was made up and just passed down, and I don't believe all that stuff, and Jesus just did the stuff. You know, lots of guys fulfilled prophecy, and you could have just read them and done them ahead of time, and uh, which, you know, would have been crazy, but okay. Uh, so I do this. Uh, and, and you can feel free to steal this. What I'll do uh, is I'll pick up my Bible and I'll go, okay, I'm going to read you something. And all I want you to do is tell me what I'm reading about. Now, I do not tell them. It's very important. Don't tell them where you're reading. So I will read them Psalm 22, which we've just quoted four times. It is so obviously about the cross. By the time I get to verse 18 for sure, they're going, oh, that's Jesus on the cross. I go, okay. And I turn around and I show them. So I'm reading Psalm 22. This was written a thousand years 
before uh, Jesus was crucified on the cross. It was written hundreds of years before crucifixion was invented as a means of killing people. We have a copy, an existing copy of Psalm 22 that predates Jesus by a hundred years. Please explain that to me. Yeah. So it's just a simple way of saying uh, there's a lot of prophecy in the Bible that you just can't explain any other way. And then if you want to have fun, you can go, now there's about 300 prophecies about Jesus if you want to go through all of them. And, uh, but the point is, uh, guys, the word is amazing. Uh, it's so specific that a person who doesn't, who all they've done is watched a couple of Easter shows can tell you that Psalm 22 is about Jesus being crucified, right? So anyway, that's free. Go get someone saved with that. Uh, have fun. All right. Next point, Jesus is on the cross, and he says, I thirst. And it's interesting because in John 19, 28, it says specifically Jesus knowing everything that was going to happen in order to fulfill Scripture said, I thirst. So Jesus has gone, all right, we got one more uh, Scripture to fulfill here, one more prophecy to fulfill. So he goes, I thirst. And so they run, and this time they don't get him the wine mixed with myrrh and gall. They get him sour wine, basically vinegar, yuck. Uh, so that, to me, is just torturous as well. Um, and they put it on a sponge, and they put it up to his mouth. And again, this fulfills Scripture. Uh, Psalm 22, once again, verse 15. Uh, he talks about his thirst and his tongue clinging to the roof of his mouth. Psalm 69, uh, they gave me gall and vinegar as my drink. So he fulfills Scripture again, and now he's done. He's done everything he needs to do. And Jesus' second cry from the cross, is, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. I love this. Because what was his first cry? Why have you forsaken me? God, I don't know why have you forsaken me, but I trust you. Here's my spirit. Here's I am. Maybe that'll help you someday when you feel maybe like you're forsaken, like you're out there on your own. Where's God? That the correct response is, I commit myself to you. Amen? Don't need to understand. I commit myself to you. So I love the trust that's expressed there. And then he says, it is finished in verse 30. Think about that. It is finished. Everything that needs to happen has just happened. Jesus has completed the work he came to do. Uh, everything that is necessary to make a way for men to be saved has just been done. It is finished. Nothing more needs to be done. He will raise from the dead because he needs to complete uh, going back to heaven. He's got more stuff to do when he comes again. But as far as salvation is concerned, a way has been made. It is finished. And at this point, it says he gave up his spirit. I remind you of John 10, what we read there. Jesus said, no one takes my life from me. I give it. I, the Father has given me authority to lay it down, and the Father has given me authority to take it up again. So he just goes, it's done. I'm going to die now. Here's my spirit, God. And he just does. He gives up his life. He gives up his spirit to the Father, which surprises everyone because it was supposed to be a long, torturous death. Uh, and, you know, six hours seems long and torturous enough for me, but it could go longer. They were surprised that he was already dead when they came to check him. 
Now, uh, so it's dark, and he says it's finished, and he gives up his spirit, and then two really cool things happen. The veil of the temple is torn from top to bottom. Now, the veil of the temple is about a hand's breadth thick. It's, it's not like tearing your curtains. Uh, this sucker's heavy. And it's almost as if an angel or God or somebody grabbed the thing at the top and tore it, top to bottom. As you know, the veil in the temple separated the holiest place, the most holy, from the rest of the place. Only one guy once a year went in there, the, the high priest, and had access to that, right? Because that's where God lived. That's where the mercy seat was. And so it's torn in two, which of course speaks to us of access. Hebrews 10, 19 through 20 says, we have boldness to enter into the holiest through the veil, that is Christ's flesh. So as Christ's flesh is given for us, the veil is torn, and it's a clear message that in, in the death of Jesus, access to the Holy One has now been granted because we can be made righteous through His blood and qualify to walk right in, to come boldly before the throne of grace. Amen? Amen. Isn't that awesome? Now, another thing happened that has to do with access. It says there was an earthquake and a bunch of graves opened up. You get it? Who else is getting access? Dead people. Veil's torn. You guys all have access to heaven. Oh, and Graves open. Dead people, you come along too. Amen. Graves are open. You get the message? Isn't that awesome? Yeah. It's a dual message. The dead and the living now have access to the holiest. And that's what Jesus is going to do. He's going to go into the earth. He's going to preach to captivity. And uh, they're going to, people like Abraham, who've been in Abraham's bosom all this time, are now going to have access to heaven. To the holiest. Isn't that awesome? Now, uh, just so you know, because it says that the graves opened and it says that the dead were raised, uh, it specifically, and this is in Matthew, it specifically says that the dead were raised after the resurrection. So they didn't come out right away when, when the earthquake hit. It's like the earthquake hit and the graves were all opened up and the, the veil was torn in two. And I don't know, the, the, you know, the guys that did the work probably went to the Pharisees and said, look, we got to fix the veil that's been torn in two. And by the way, there's a lot of open graves. And, and uh, they said, uh, you know, hey, it's, it's Passover. Let's wait till Sunday. And they said, okay. And then they come back Sunday and they go, yeah, look, not only do we have a torn veil and open graves, but now there's dead people everywhere. They're just, they just, and Jesus is gone. Uh, his temple is empty, uh, or his tomb is empty. There's, there's other graves. There's just people coming out. Uh, uh, you know, Uncle Phil, I saw him. <laughs> I don't know what happened. That's the part that bugs me, is no one wrote more about this. And dead people came out, and I like, what'd they do? They just go into Jerusalem and go to the best falafel place and go, I've been, wanting one. I've been dying to have a falafel, you know? <laughs> dying, yeah, I don't know. I don't know what they did. Some, why did not someone write this down? Uh, you know, grandpa comes home and wants his bedroom back. I don't know. I think they just walked around for a while and then went, you know, to heaven. That's my guess. 
because you'd have some explaining to do otherwise. <laughs> why, is, why is Grandpa here? <laughs> anyway, uh, you know, that's how it happens in my head. Um, so the dead were raised after Jesus was raised. So I, I guess he brought some of them with him. Maybe he wasn't specific enough on the instructions and they just came out of the graves and wandered around and Jesus until he said, no, let's go here. So anyway, we'll find out when he raises the dead again. We'll see what that's like. And, uh, and, then, and then we'll see. I think we get horses at that point. Sounds better. All right. So it is at this point the sky is dark, he dies, temples, uh, veils torn, the guards probably don't know that happened, but they do know an earthquake is happening, and the Roman guards are really afraid and say, truly, this is the Son of God, or this was the Son of God. So their testimony is, yeah, yeah, he was the guy. Uh, this is unusual, right? Now, it's at this point um, because it's what is called preparation day. It's the day before Passover. And so you had to prepare everything for the Passover meal. I don't know if you, some of you may have been here uh, this last um, Resurrection Sunday, that season. Uh, Jeremiah and Aaron did a Seder dinner or a Passover dinner, traditional, you know. And you saw all the incredible symbolism, how Jesus is represented, most obviously as the lamb slain. But uh, in, in so many other ways, how it's like God was trying to give so many clues uh, about how this was going to go down in the Passover, right? And so uh, the problem is it's a high holy day, and you can't have guys hanging on a cross on a high feast day. And so they need to get them down before sunrise because the day changes. I'm sunset. I'm sorry, because the day changes at sunset. So uh, Jesus died at 3. Uh, by the time the sun gets down, we need to have these guys off the cross. And, uh, and usually, uh, crucifixion is supposed to be a long, grueling process, so they're not dead. So what they'll do is they'll go break their legs, because the way you survive on the cross is you're hanging there, and your bones are out of joint, and at some point, you're, you, you can't get a breath, because uh, your diaphragm is just compressed on your lungs. Um, and the way you get a breath is to push up with your legs. You get a breath, and then you, uh, that's painful because, you know, they nailed your feet. So then you go back down, you suffer for a while hanging from your arms, and then you get a breath, and you go down. Well, if they break their legs, they can't get a breath anymore, and it's going to go faster. They're going to die pretty quickly. They're going to suffocate at that point, right? So that's the plan, and they go to break the legs of the thieves, and they get to Jesus, and they go, hey, this guy's already dead, and they're surprised. How did he die so quick? Well, he gave up his spirit. But are they sure he's dead, or is he just mostly dead? They're not sure. So they take a spear, and all you fans of, yeah, okay. Anyway, uh, they take a spear, and they, uh, well, let's see, do I want to go there yet? Yeah, oh, well, I'll do it in a minute. Anyway, they're going to take a spear and poke him in the side to prove he's dead. But um, here's what I want you to get. This is, I meant to talk about preparation day more. Sorry, I got ahead with myself in the story. Um, this is preparation day. I want you to think about what this means. We've just seen all the prophetic confirmation. There's going to be a little bit more uh, in the Bible. So all these things prophesied are coming true. Literally, 
they're yelling things out of Psalm 22 at Jesus, and they don't get that they're doing it, right? And all this is going on. And here's the wild thing. It's preparation day, which means in about four hours, they are all going to be sitting down for a meal where the father, uh, traditionally the children ask questions and the father answers, and they're reviewing the Passover and the lamb. And they're reviewing things like um, the bones of the lamb not being broken. And I'm just wondering, this is like four hours later, they're going over what just happened in front of them. I'm going, are there, any, are there kids going, hey, Dad, I noticed that they didn't break that one guy's legs. Does that mean anything? You ever think about that? Jesus scheduled his crucifixion so that they would have a visual reminder four hours later. They will go through every little detail that he just went through. It's like he's really trying for us to get it. Because right after preparation day, at sundown, it becomes the Passover. And they're going to celebrate the Passover, Seder meal. They're going to go through all that stuff that points to him that they literally just saw. They just had the visual. Uh, so I got to believe that some people were starting to put two and two together at this point and get a clue. Um, and probably, uh, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if people got saved that night at Seder dinner and going, wait a minute, I think I'm figuring this thing out. Anyway, so the next thing that happens is his side is pierced uh, because that's proof that he's dead. They think he's dead. They want to make sure he's dead so they can take him down. So they stick a spear in his side. Blood and water flows out. Water being from, you know, the water around the heart, meaning that's ruptured or been pierced or whatever. Uh, so, yeah, he's dead for sure. Medically, uh, Romans are pretty good at telling dead people uh, he's dead. We knew he's dead. So those of you who, you know, have heard of the swoon theory, just laugh and move on. Um, he was dead. Now, this also is a fulfillment of prophecy. Um, John 19, verses 36 and 37. For these things were done that the scripture should be fulfilled. Not one of his bones shall be broken. So they didn't break his legs. They were fixing to, but they didn't. Because in Exodus 12, it says, uh, you're not supposed to break any bones of the lamb for the Passover sacrifice. And in Psalm 34, it's prophesied that none of his bones will be broken. And so they didn't. And again, another scripture says, they shall look on him who they pierced. And that's Zechariah 12.10, which actually is probably in context with the end times. What that verse is actually, but John used it here to, to say this is the fulfillment of how they pierced his side. But it also has a future fulfillment. Uh, it's talking about the time when the nations are gathered in the valley of Megiddo and fixing to uh, come against Israel. And Israel, uh, it's, it says that, that they will a spirit of supplication will come upon them, a spirit of prayer. And then they will look on the one who they pierced and they'll mourn for him as his only son. I believe that's talking about the national salvation of Israel in that day when they go, oh my goodness, uh, we crucified him. He's the Messiah. All right, we're in. And now unfortunately, uh, there's a big army out there. Fortunately, he's going to come deal with the big army. That's another teaching. All right. You guys know how that one ends, right? Okay, so I just, again, this one's just an aside. Um, 
in, uh, when we do communion, and we typically read out of uh, 1 Corinthians 11, um, uh, often, uh, not often, but sometimes people say, uh, Jesus' body broken for you. And I always cringe at that. This is just my pet peeve. So, but be aware, because, you know, we do communion here. Um, because Jesus' body was specifically not broken, and there's a reason for that, right? So stay with me on this one. Uh, in, when he's at the Last Supper, Jesus says he takes the bread and breaks it and says, this is my body. So the bread's broken. The body is never broken. He's just, he broke the bread and said, this is my body, the bread of life. You guys get that. So it's important that we recognize, because in 1 Corinthians 11, where he's talking about people being sick for not recognizing the body, what they're, what they're doing is they're, they're eating before others get there. Uh, they're, they're, uh, they're not paying attention to their oneness. It's the very thing that we're talking about. Uh, the body is bro- isn't broken. Christ's body is never broken. Christ's body is one. The bones are never broken. And what they're doing is not recognizing that, the very point of communion, that we're one, that we're one in Him, right? And so uh, in the future, uh, just remember the bread is broken, not the body. It is the picture of our unity in Christ. Recognize the body, the unbroken body of Christ that we are united in Him. Amen? All right, again, that one was free. Uh, So, Jesus has died. Joseph of Arimathea, uh, with Nicodemus, by the way. Remember Nicodemus from John chapter 3? Comes to Jesus at night, and Jesus tells him he has to be born again, and and Nick's very confused. Uh, Anyway, uh, Nicodemus was was a, a, a priest. He was on the council, the Sanhedrin, the seventy. Um, Joseph of Arimathea apparently was part of the council, the Sanhedrin also. So Joseph of Arimathea comes and buries him in a new nearby garden tomb. Now what's interesting is uh, Joseph was, we're told he was wealthy, he was a prominent council member, and that he hadn't consented to the council's decision. So it's easy to read it and think that the whole Sanhedrin had lost their minds and wanted Jesus crucified. There are at least two guys that weren't there. So I just want to say, anytime you're ready to write off an entire organization, uh, just be careful. God may have a couple of his hidden in there. Amen. Right? So he had a couple of them among the Sanhedrin. Uh, Joseph and Nicodemus, at least. Probably there were more that just didn't, just like the uh, apostles uh, didn't speak up because they didn't want to suffer the consequences at that time. So they come and get Jesus' body, and they prepare him and bury him in a nearby tomb. It had to be nearby because they had to get home for Passover, had to get this done before sun went down. Uh, this is a fulfillment of Isaiah 53, verse 9. And they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death. So he had a really, really, really ugly death on a cross, but got a really primo grave Afterwards, it was a beautiful place in a garden that had never been used uh, because, it goes on to say, uh, because no violence was found in him and because of his righteousness. So he was honored in his death. All right. So the last thing we see is the Pharisees and the religious leaders are nervous about uh, a resurrection deception. They say, look, we remember this guy talked about 
something about three days and rising from the dead. And we don't need any fake news out there about this. So we want to cut this deception off right now, ahead of time. There won't be anybody tweeting about this, right? So uh, we need some guards to seal the tomb and, uh, and guard it to make sure that we prohibit any uh, false news, any, any non, uh, non-sanctioned narratives. Amen? So that was the plan. Uh, we'll find out next week how that worked out for him. Uh, spoiler alert, not well. All right. Now, one last thing I want to close with. Um, we talked, as we've been going through John, we talked about the glory of the cross. I found it interesting in John 13, as he's winding up John 13, he's getting ready to go into the discussion in 14 through 16 that we spent so much time on. Jesus talks about, uh, now is the time for me to be glorified. And he's talking about the cross. And in John 17, verse 1, the same thing. The time has come for the Father to glorify me and for me to glorify the Father. He's talking about the cross. He sees the cross as his glory. It is a humiliating, terrible experience, but it's glory. And so I want to make sure we understand that. And as I'm thinking about that, uh, I I want to think about, because again, this is where Jesus literally becomes uh, the Passover lamb, right? On Passover, while they're celebrating while they're offering the daily sacrifice, while they're going that night to go through and remember the Passover. Jesus is becoming the Passover for all men. And something interesting I saw, I'm just going to give you to think about. In John, going all the way back to John chapter 1, verse 29, John the Baptist, uh, he's, we're told that John the Baptist came in the spirit of Elijah, who is a pretty good prophet, right? And uh, yet, he didn't do any miracles, and he didn't seem to do a whole lot that was super prophetic other than um, he announced Jesus was coming and prepared the way for Jesus. And I'm, I'm reevaluating that now because I'm going, he had one of the most amazing prophetic statements ever in the Bible. And here it comes. In 129, the next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, behold, the Lamb of God Who takes away the sin of the world? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And I started thinking about this. I realized this is a new title. This title has never been used before. There is no Lamb of God in the Old Testament. This is an amazing prophetic statement. I started looking through the rest of the New Testament. I'm like, no one else used this. John used it once. I'm sorry, he used it twice in John 1, he referred to Jesus as the Lamb of God. He doesn't use it again. No one else uses it again until the book of Revelation. Uh, it comes up once in Acts where Isaiah 53 is quoted as uh, he went as a lamb. Uh, he went uh, silent as a lamb to a slaughter. And once in Peter where he's compared uh, uh, as a spotless lamb. But it's never used as a title. All right? And so I'm going, well, this is interesting. John must have had amazing prophetic insight. Now, before I tell you about its use in Revelation, there is a hint at it in the Old Testament. It's not used in the Old Testament, but there's a hint at it. 
In Genesis 22, verse 8. Remember Abraham? Abraham's got a kid named Isaac. Isaac's the promised son. And God goes, yeah, kill that one. And uh, offer him as a sacrifice to me. And Abraham, being Abraham, goes, okie doke. And so he gets some wood, and he makes Isaac carry the wood. That seems kind of harsh. But uh, Isaac carries the wood, and yeah, just like Jesus had to carry his wood. Good point. Didn't see that. It's amazing what's in there, isn't it? So uh, he, he goes up. They get up on Mount Moriah, and uh, Isaac, being the clever boy that he is, goes, well, we got wood. We got fire. I don't see a sacrifice because uh, he doesn't know what's going on. And, uh, and what does Abraham say? God will provide the sacrifice. And, of course, it has an immediate fulfillment. They see a ram in the thicket, and God says, no, don't kill Isaac. I know you really trust me now. Um, we'll do the ram instead. But it also has a prophetic fulfillment. Interesting, God will provide the lamb for a burnt offering. Mount Moriah is what we now refer to as the Temple Mount. It's where the temple was built. It's a short walk from where they took Jesus to be crucified as the provided lamb. Isn't that amazing? It's almost as if he wants us to be beyond dispute, obvious. So, Revelation. I said this, this term, Lamb of God, doesn't come up again until the book of Revelation. So I'm looking in the book of Revelation, and there are like 30 to 35 different titles used for Jesus. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ, so that makes sense. Um, now I say titles or descriptors because you got to decide, does uh, to him who was and is and is to come, is that a title or is that a description? Anyway, however you want to parse it, 30 to 35 of those. Each one of them used from once to a few times, except lamb. Lamb, by far, way above all the others, is the most common. It's used 30 times. This thing that only occurs once in one chapter, well, twice in one chapter, in the rest of the Bible is used 30 times in the book of Revelation. The lamb, the lamb, the lamb of God, the lamb, the lamb. What is the most popular title for Jesus in heaven? Lamb. Way more than the others. I know. Wow. They're really into this. So here's what I want you to see. Uh, this is his glory, guys. This is an amazing title, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the earth. In Revelation chapter 5, and we looked at this before, we'll look at verse 6 and then jump to verse 9. It says, I looked and in the midst of the throne of the four living creatures, uh, I'm sorry, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb. Not Jesus from Revelation 1 with eyes of fire and burnished bronze feet and a two-edged sword in his mouth. No, what's, what's on the throne? John gets there, he goes, we're going to go look at the throne. All right, what are we going to see? There's the 24 elders. There's the cherubim around the throne. There's the fiery, all that. What's there? The lamb, the lamb of God. Why is that significant? This, of course, Revelation 5 is where John is lamenting because no one is found worthy to take the scroll and open its seals and begin to bring justice to the earth and fix everything that's wrong and uh, destroy those who destroy the earth, Right? And he says, nope, there's one found worthy. Who is it? The lamb. The lamb. 
Why? And they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and open the seals. Here's why. You were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood and of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. The only worthy one in heaven to take the scroll is the Lamb. As I'm telling you, the Lamb humbled on earth is glorious in heaven. The Lamb humbled on earth is glorious in heaven. And we need to gaze at the Lamb some. We need to gaze at this uh, day that the Lord made where Jesus was sacrificed for our sins so that we get a picture of His glory in heaven. And I'm convinced that it will be the same for His disciples who choose humility now that we're trading glory on earth for glory in heaven. So we just choose humility. We just go, I'm going to be like the lamb who was humbled on earth, but is glorious in heaven. That's what Jesus meant when he said, if anyone wants to be my disciple, if anyone wants to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Whoever desires to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. You can trade the life, you can trade the glory of this life for heavenly glory simply by humbling yourself and going, I'm going to follow Jesus, the Lamb. I'm going to be His disciple. And I'll even take up His cross wherever that's necessary uh, because it's more important for me to have glory there than to have glory here. Right? Isn't that awesome?